Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how is your Friday? I'm feeling funky, Michael. I'm feeling funky. I'm looking forward to one of our great Friday shows. I know our audience love them too. What does it mean? What do you mean when you say you're feeling funky? I often think of, like my sister calls sort of food funky if it's a bit weird. But I don't know, maybe you feel like you've got a bit of, you know, you've got some spring in your step. I'm not fermenting, Michael, put it that way. Okay, you're not fermenting, that's good to know. Um, big stories tonight. Lucky is not fermenting. Um, rioting has been taking place in France for three nights now. We'll be discussing why. Um, an incredible leak from a UK water company about how they are panicking about being nationalised and the Tories' Rwanda deportation policy gets roundly rejected on BBC Question Time. Stay tuned for all of that. First story. Zach Goldsmith has resigned as the Tory Minister for the International Environment, citing Rishi Sunak's failure to deal properly with climate change. In his resignation letter, he wrote this, The UK has visibly stepped off the world stage and withdrawn our leadership on climate and nature. Too often we are simply absent from key international fora. Only last week you seemingly chose to attend the party of a media baron, that's Rupert Murdoch, rather than attend a critically important environment summit in Paris that ordinarily the UK would have co-led. Now he went on to say this, Prime Minister, having been able to get so much done previously, I have struggled even to hold the line in recent months. The problem is not that the government is hostile to the environment, it is that you, our Prime Minister, are simply uninterested. That signal or lack of it has trickled down through Whitehall and caused a kind of paralysis. I will never understand how, with all the knowledge we now have about our fundamental reliance on the natural world and the speed with which we are destroying it, anyone can be uninterested. But even if this existential challenge leaves you personally unmoved, there is a world of people who do care very much and you will need their votes. Goldsmith cited Sunak's refusal to fulfil a pledge to spend £12 billion in aid money on climate and the environment as one of his biggest failures. Allies of Sunak have hit back, though they immediately briefed that Goldsmith only resigned after being told to apologise for criticising the Privileges Committee over their investigation into Boris Johnson. And Sunak appeared to confirm that theory in a press conference today. Quickly on Lord Goldsmith, he was asked to apologise for his comments about the Privileges Committee because I felt that those were incompatible with his position and as a minister. He's obviously chosen to take a different course. Uh, I accept that. I'm proud of the record of this government and indeed of Zach in government, making sure that we tackle climate change and protect our natural environment. I think the UK has played a leadership role globally and we will continue to do so, uh, as, uh, as you will see. Zach Goldsmith is, of course, a deeply cynical politician, as was evidenced in his Islamophobic mayoral campaign against Sadiq Khan. So I wouldn't put it past him to lie about why he's quitting any job. But even if Goldsmith's motives weren't pure, his resignation does come in a week when Sunak is taking heat for his climate policies or lack thereof. Just this Wednesday, the Climate Change Committee reported that Sunak had taken Britain backwards on climate change, its chair, the Tory peer Lord Debon, said this. It's not just that uh, the United Kingdom has lost its leadership in the world on this issue. It is that the United States, with its remarkable new legislation, the European Union, with its very clear new legislation, and indeed China, uh, doing a huge amount more. They are the ones that are going to get the uh, investment. They are the ones that will get the new green jobs. Lord Devon is a former Tory environment secretary who served under Thatcher and John Major, so hardly a bleeding heart liberal. 
Aaron, do you think this will be remembered as a significant week when it comes to the Tories and climate change? No, I don't think so, Michael. It's just uh, it's another day in the ongoing Tory car crash, uh, which I think we'll see all the way through to the next general election. Maybe not, but I suspect that's what's most likely. I and mean, with Zach Goldsmith, look, this chap's 48 years old. He's worth several hundred million pounds. He's, he's probably thinking to himself, I, I suspect correctly, um, there's no real upside, whether it's personal, political, or with regards to just basic status, being a Tory legislator for much longer. So a lot of these people, Michael, I think probably the majority of Tory MPs right now, even the ones who have safe seats, um, are just probably putting their brains elsewhere for now and and pondering their next move. So when you're when you're mentally logged out like that, I think things like this feel lower cost for them. One response from Sunak's allies has has been to say this isn't really um, why he's resigned. Um, he's resigned because of this issue with the Privileges Committee. Another response is to say no, he has resigned because of the environment, and that's great. We love that. So David Frost is a Tory peer who's very popular on the party's right. He tweeted this in response to the resignation. I hope Zach Goldsmith is right to have detected less commitment from Rishi Sunak to global preaching on fashionable environmental and climate causes paid for by UK taxpayers. Any such trend is very much to be encouraged. Um, now, Aaron, David Frost is, I think, planning to stand down as a peer so he can stand as a Tory MP. Many people think because he wants to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. So, I mean, we're hearing complaints that Sunak isn't as enthusiastic about the climate as, say, Boris Johnson. Um, could it be that next time around we get someone who's not just lackadaisical on the climate, but proactively against climate action? Could that be the future of the Conservative Party? I think that's that's almost certain. You've got to sort of look at what happens really in the aftermath of 2024, if that's when the next general election is. It could be as late as January 25, but I think that would be counterproductive. And I think most likely we're looking at summer, uh, autumn 2024. And in the aftermath of that, let's 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 say it's not even a seismic defeat, which right now it looks like it would be. Let's just say it's a decent majority for Labour, 60-70. Um, and the Tories go into opposition. I feel there's a very high chance that really they will tear themselves to shreds because for a very long time that party has encapsulated so many different political and ideological differences. You look at Cameron, for instance, same-sex marriage. The majority of Tory party members did not support that. It got through on votes because of uh, the Labour Party and Liberal Democrats. That was David Cameron really taking on his own party because he was trying to signal to the British public and the electorate that the Tories had changed. But on many issues, of course, they haven't. And I think opposition to green measures will be probably the calling card of a very successful candidate seeking the Tory leadership after 24. Look, Sunak might hang on, you know, if they if they don't lose to the extent which we're presently expecting. But if he does go, he'll probably be replaced by someone considerably to his right on politics. Of course, Sunak is very right wing, but he's had to position himself as a centrist since Brexit, fundamentally. I, I do feel like we will have a Tory party after 24-25, which basically says, fracking, oil and gas, we need to boost growth, we need to build houses, all kinds of things. We're going for growth. And that actually some of the sacred cows of the last several decades, be it health and safety, be it planning regs, um, albeit um, trying to actually address the climate crisis, that will all go into a bonfire of policy pieties 
And I think that'd be part of a, a Trumpification of, of the Tory party. Now, I know that the sort of liberal middle class and the people that run The Guardian and the BBC, when they talk about Trump, they care about the appearances, they care about the rhetoric. I'm talking about the policies here. I can see how a very, um, a very populist conservative party can try and appeal to workers by saying we won't stop oil and gas in the North Sea. We want to reduce tax, for instance, on petrol uh, when you fill up your tank and your car. So I think it will be a massive uh, site of confrontation in the Tories. And frankly, I, I can't see a centrist Cameroon or you know, Cameron Mark II uh, winning that leadership by going against that. So I think that would very much be the common sense of the Labour Party. The, the David Cameron days of Hugger Husky are very much behind us, I think. That could mean that we see the same divisions emerging here as you're seeing currently in the United States, right? We've got a fairly centrist Labour Party, but who is fairly progressive on, on climate or at least willing to throw billions of dollars in terms of a, a green industrial revolution or industrial strategy. And then you've got a, a, you know, a, a right-wing party that's flirting with climate denial. And I think in America, you know, that's one of the big points of division between the Democrats and Republicans. They've also got abortion and all these social issues, which I don't think will come to the fore so much here. Um, but I think climate could be a big one, right? Totally. And, and, and one big difference, Michael, because you're right to draw the parallels there between the US and the UK, but one big difference is that the UK hasn't really grown for 15 years on a per-person basis. You know, we have a struggling economic model. We've got stagnating living standards. And so it's, a, it's an easier sell for the Democrats when other parts of the economy are working well. Okay, they're not working for ordinary Americans, so to speak, but you have very successful technology sector. You have very successful agricultural exports. You're a massive energy exporter to the rest of the world. Um, when there's so much which is quote unquote going right in the US economy, I feel that's less of a live debate. But in the UK, where we've had very little growth, stagnant wages, stagnant living standards, I can see how it would play out a little bit differently, where the Tories might go to, you know, quote unquote red wall seats and try and win back voters they look like they're about to lose on opposition to not even, I don't think they need to de deny climate change. I don't think they need to go that far. I'm sure some will, of course. But they would say, well, look, you know, we're, we're buying oil and gas in the rest of the world. Why don't we extract our own, you know? Um, and, and that will be a compelling message to some people. Now, that doesn't mean that the majority of the public disagrees with the reality of climate change. What I'm saying is there is an opportunity here for the Tories with blue-collar workers in particular. If they get this right, to talk about job creation, wealth creation, and so on, of course, what they won't be mentioning is the overhead with regards to you know, fossil fuels CO2 emissions and what that means for a planet on fire in the not too distant future. Let's briefly look at some divisions emerging on the left when it comes to climate change and the appropriate response to it. Um, and that's because Just Stop Oil have threatened to disrupt pride celebrations taking place in London tomorrow. They posted this open letter to the pride organisers on Twitter. So, dear whoever the name of the organiser of London Pride is, it was great to meet you today to have the time to listen and share with each other. As a follow-up for you to take to the board of directors, these are Just Stop Oil's demands of Pride. One, clarity on where Pride sources its money from, what floats are included and what ethical considerations are taken when deciding who to accept money from. Two, Pride makes a statement to demand an end to new oil and gas. Three, 
Pride to set up a public meeting for its volunteers about joining in civil resistance against new oil and gas and why the climate crisis is the biggest threat to LGBT plus rights due to social collapse. And they say, we will wait 24 hours as of 4pm today. And that was on the 28th of June, so that was on Wednesday, for Pride to respond to our demands and the actions Pride will take beyond this time or not meeting these demands will mean we may or may not take action at this weekend's events. Look forward to hearing from you soon. Many thanks. And then whatever their name is. Aaron, what do you make of this? I suppose my take is I do I do find this style of letter a little bit obnoxious, like this sort of ultimatum. You have to tell all of your volunteers to join our organization or we're going to disrupt your event. Like I think it's it comes across to me as obnoxious. At the same time, though, I'm very in favor of just stop oil interrupting pride. And that's not so much because I think, oh, pride has this corporate sponsor or whatever. It's because I think Just Stop Oil really, really need to start disrupting things which are like left-coded, right? Mm. Because at the moment, they're just disrupting people going to work, white man then, people who watch snooker, people who watch cricket. And I think it, it's got this sort of, you can easily sort of join these dots and say they're, they're just anti-normies, right? They, they don't want people doing normal things. They don't think that's, that's woke yeah. enough. So I, I, I mean, I kind of wanted them to interrupt Glastonbury. I mean, I think it's harder to get on the stage at Glastonbury than it is to get close to a painting, for example. So it might just be that there was sort of practical problems, but it's very much not hard to interrupt a pride parade. So I think for political reasons, I don't want this to become a culture war. I, 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 I think their intentions really is to get attention. And I don't see why they should only be getting attention when it interrupts normie activities and not getting attention when it interrupts like left-coded activities such as gay pride marches. I mean, what's your take? No, I think that's spot on. Michael, look, pride is normie. Let's be real. Um, not as, you know, not as normie as some other stuff, but it's, it's, it's pretty normie. But I know what you mean left-coded. I mean, I, I know what you mean by left-coded, of course. Um, and it would certainly aggravate some people on the right if uh, Just Stop Oil would uh, disrupt pride. They, you know, they wouldn't know how to respond. It would be, it would be fascinating. And I agree with your overall point about left-coded events instance, Glastonbury. Although I have to push back on something, Michael. You know, they did they did make an intervention in one uh, left-coded event, which of course was Chelsea Flower Show, um, which is where the great and the good of uh, the the Britain's uh, liberal classes go. I, one day I'll have enough money where I can go myself. Take my father; he does love a good garden. Uh, I, I think you're right in terms of the politics of it, um, and I agree with regards to that message, Michael. I don't like it. Maybe I'm getting old. Maybe I'm becoming a boomer, right? I, I don't mind the points they're making. I was like, oh, quite good points. And then, you know, you have to, can you, if you can maybe pull that back up again, or maybe not, I don't know. But this idea that you will do this, who the hell are you to tell me what to do, when, and on what timeline? Personally, when people do that to me, it just turns me right off. You, you will do this when, who are you? You're not the police. You haven't got courts on your side. Shut up, you know, shut up. I don't like it personally. It turns me right off. I think it turns other people off as well. But look, we're all different. Nobody's got a monopoly on political insights and strategy. Uh, but I, I thought their, their core demands were interesting enough, and you can agree or disagree with them. But it's that final bit, you know. One thing I learned, Michael, actually, with the, the whole Corbyn thing is Brits love politeness, you know. Jeremy Corbyn could have solved 40% of his problems if he wore a suit from M&S um, and, and did, like, content with, like, Brompton bikes and, you know, Betsy's, the cream tea people in, what's it, in um, Harrogate, stuff like that, just the polite, nice Waitrose stuff. It literally, it makes your life so much easier 
because the stuff you really care about is actually quite radical and potentially antagonistic. So the form sometimes needs to be quite ameliorative. And you're very good on this, Michael. I think you persuaded me on it, a lot of it, actually. So when you're making quite radical demands of people, don't then end the communication by being sort of obstreperous and antagonistic. I don't think you're helping yourself. It's quite performative in a way. The thing I quite like about Just Stop Oil and that I find quite charming in a way is that they're sort of, they're like, we're doing this to get attention. We're very explicitly trying to get as much attention as we can. Sorry if we inconvenience you, but it's for a greater cause. I, I back that. When it's to say, you've done something wrong, so we're going to punish you, which is essentially how that, that, that letter to pride reads. I find that a bit odd. But as I say, you know, on the broad point, um, I am with them. And let's go straight on to our next story. These were the scenes last night in Paris during the third consecutive night of rioting across France. The unrest was sparked by the death of Nahel M, who was killed by police on Tuesday. Nahel, a 17-year-old of North African descent, was shot at point-blank range by an officer during a traffic stop. He was unarmed, and footage of the deadly shooting has been viewed across France, feeding into distrust and anger at the French police, who are widely viewed as unaccountable and racist. Over the course of Thursday night, at least 667 people were arrested. Rioting has been especially intense in Nanterre, the Parisian suburb where Nahal lived and where he was killed. But the unrest has grown to span the whole country. In central Paris, young people attacked a Nike store, presumably trying to loot it. And in Marseille, there were widespread protests. People here were chanting down with the state, the cops and the fascists. Marseille has today banned public demonstrations and public transport will cease operating from 7pm. As for some of the damage caused by the unrest, Sky News reported from Nanterre earlier today. I just want to show you around this street. We were at the uh, end of this street uh, last night and we could hear repeated explosions. We could see fireworks and you can see uh, some of what was going on. So there's probably a, a dozen cars maybe up and down this street uh, which, are, which have been set on fire, totally uh, torched um, here. And these are cars of people who live in the area. Um, if we look in the middle there, this one has been burnt out completely. You can just see the wreckage here uh, of the seats inside there. Some of them say uh, graffiti in, on the side in red, fight the power. You can see that there's a digger that's come in already in the back there, um, trying to move stuff on. Actually, that van there says justice for Nael. So those are some of the consequences of the unrest. As for the consequences of the shooting itself, Nahel's mother has released a video talking about the tragedy of her loss. They enlevé a baby. It was still a child. He had a need of his mother. This morning, he made a big kiss. He said, Mom, I love you. I said, do you attention to you. I said, do Voilà, on est sorti en même temps. Il est parti prendre un McDo, je suis parti travailler comme tout le monde. Une heure après, on me dit quoi On a tiré sur mon fils. Je vais faire quoi Je vais faire quoi J'en ai qu'un, j'en ai pas dix, j'en ai qu'un. C'était ma vie, c'était mon meilleur ami, c'était mon fils, c'était ma... C'était tout pour moi. On était complices comme pas possible. Merci beaucoup pour votre soutien. Là, merci beaucoup. Je vous remercie beaucoup, beaucoup, beaucoup. Je sais plus quoi vous dire. Merci. To find out more about the context of the unrest, I spoke earlier to Siam Asbag, a journalist and researcher who has worked with many families who have had family members killed by the police. I began by asking Siam what exactly we know about Nahel M's death. Two police officers tried to stop uh, Nahel, 
and that uh, they beat him with a with a cross that he was afraid um, and that uh, when he tried to to go the police officer shot him and we know that before he shot him um, a ball on his chest uh, the police officer uh, said to him he, he shouted on him I'm gonna put you a ball on your on your head I'm gonna put you a ball on your head and his colleague told him go go um, uh, put uh, open fire Nahil is not the first young man who was killed by police officers. It happens often in France, like, for example, since the first uh, day of January, uh, 16 people died during a police intervention. And we know that every week, uh, one uh, man, one, one person uh, died during a police intervention. So it happens regularly and it's uh, often the same kind of profile. It means a man uh, coming from the working class and uh, non-white men. It's uh, especially black men, uh, Arab men, North African men, or Roma uh, men who are killed by police uh, officers. But now uh, there is this video and everyone saw uh, what, what we as activists as grassroots organizations are talking about since several several years uh, about the structural racism uh, within the police institution and about the uh, racial harassment and about those killings. And can you put the size of this unrest in perspective? As far as I understand, this is the biggest social explosion of, of this kind since 2005. Yeah, I, th- I think we, we could say that. Um, in for the suburban areas and uh, against police uh, uh, violence. Um, since 2005, there were a lot of protests. Uh, each time, it's the same story. Uh, actually, it's the same story since uh, 1979. Uh, every time that a police officer beat or arrest or kill uh, um, uh, a non-white man in those areas, uh, they, 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 they lead to, outra- to outrage and uh, and um, and riots. And yeah, I guess that um, it's been a long time that we didn't see uh, such an intense and massive uh, demonstrations and protests uh, from those areas against uh, the the state violence. And what has been the popular response to the riots among the the general? public? Is there broad sympathy for, for the aims, and I suppose especially given the actions of the police, or is there an attempt to, to demonize everyone who's involved? I mean, it depends. Uh, yeah, but we can see a lot of people uh, in the, in the uh, political board and uh, in the media trying to demonize and criminalize uh, Nahil first, his family, his neighborhood, but also all the people who show solidarity uh, to him and his family and who uh, denounce uh, police violence and structural uh, racism. And for example, we just right now, like one or two hours ago, there is um, uh, police unions, two police unions who uh, signed um, awful text. They say that the, the people who are demonstrating are savages and that uh, the state should allow them to use more and more force against them. And they warn that if the state, uh, if the president doesn't say anything to support police officers, they will do what they want to do. So it's quite worrying and uh, 
uh, and awful, you know, what's going on now. How will the state respond? We've seen lots of arrests so far. I mean, there's been talk about a state of emergency. Could that happen? What would that mean? The president's reaction was, you know, double face. Uh, in the same time, he says that uh, the, the murder of Nahel is unforgivable and inexplicable. But also in the same time, he demonizes the, the protests, the demonstrations, and is sending more and more police officers, you know, to um, to to prevent uh, those those protests. And now he wants, yeah, they are talking about uh, um, launching the state emergency and about um, uh, giving more power to police officers. So, yes. I mean, they're going to reinforce the, the police powers and, and security. And that's, that's a problem. Shootings during traffic stops seems to be a particular problem in, in France. Could you explain why that's the case? I mean, I know this is a huge problem in the United States. Um, one of the reasons there, though, is that you have you know, mass gun ownership. Why is it the case that in, in France, we don't have mass gun ownership? You're still getting people shot during traffic stops. Because it's black and Arab men who are conducting those cars. I mean, we cannot uh, avoid the debate about structural racism in the police. And actually, the people who died uh, during those kind of police interventions, a big majority of them were non-white men. And it seems, um, it seems like when police officers so see those kinds of men uh, those men uh, um, driving the car, they uh, um, see him as a threat, as a threat. They uh, think that their life is, is in danger and they want to stop them by all, by all means. And it generates those, those, those killings. So, yeah, it's not about guns because the, 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 the people who were killed were unarmed. Uh, Nahil was unarmed. He was not threatening the life of the police officers. But he was a young North African man, and his life, his own very existence, is seen as a threat. That was Siam Asbag speaking to me earlier today. And let's go straight on to our next story. The water companies are not very popular right now, and at least one of their bosses is panicking. Liv Garfield is the boss of FTSE 100 water giant 7 Trent, and she's been emailing around other water bosses trying to arrange a meeting with the Labour Party in order to fend off nationalisation. Now, the extraordinary email was leaked to the Evening Standard. Now, they write this. In an email sent to other utility CEOs, which she describes as, quote, sensitive and, quote, highly confidential, the £4 million a year Garfield asked them to join an off-the-record roundtable with Will Hutton, the observer journalist best known for books critical of capitalism, including the state we're in. The Standard has some quotes from Garfield's email. Um, so in the email, she says this, whilst it is clear Labour will not include nationalisation in its next manifesto, they are also not keen on entering into the election race, championing the status quo. The leadership thinks there is room for improvement and politically, there is significant pressure to do something about utilities. One idea we believe might be attractive to the Labour leadership is repurposing utilities and utility networks into a new breed of declared social purpose companies. Companies that remain privately owned who absolutely can and should make a profit, but ones that also have a special duty to take a long-term view. 
She also told her fellow bosses this. The Labour leadership is aware we are soft testing various ideas, but have asked us to keep it highly confidential. So please don't forward this email. Remember, Liv Garfield earns £4 million a year. Seven Trent is £7 billion in debt. Aaron, what do you make of this? It seems a little bit desperate, doesn't it? Michael, when I first saw this story this morning, I, I tweeted it. I thought it was fake. I thought, is this like a, has somebody made like a clone evening standard website that like looks identical, but there's something slightly different in the URL, like an underscore right? I genuinely didn't think it was real um, because it's almost like a, it's almost like a parody of how the elite try and insulate themselves and their interests from democratic accountability and scrutiny. And the, and the, and the deep, profound relationship between journalism, between privately owned uh, utilities, and between the political parts. Of course, you have Will Hutton here from The Observer, you have these people in the water industry, and you have the Labour Party as well. It was replete with cliches. I just couldn't believe it. It was almost like a leftist sort of, you know, it was like a leftist fever dream of how these people actually behave. Um, but then, of course, in that article, they have the communications, they've named people, they say they've gone to them. So I thought, well, this has to be, this has to be true. I mean, this seems true. So, uh, yeah, just utterly extraordinary. And, and a few things, Michael, the involvement of Will Hutton from The Observer for me is so, so informative. You know, this guy, he is somebody who said, I'm a social democrat. Yeah, he's liaising with privately owned water companies, which have paid out more than fifty billion pounds in dividends to shareholders since the early nineteen nineties. I think as much as seventy billion since the inception in the late nineteen eighties. These CEOs on megabucks, millions of pounds to oversee a completely dysfunctional system where we give shareholders money, but we don't invest it in actually keeping the infrastructure in top nick. Let alone maybe not increasing people's bills, heaven forbid. Um, we've got the prospect of water bills being increased by as much as 40% next year. Of course, that story came out yesterday. And you have Will Hutton, who, who claims he's a social democrat, helping these people. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. He's not a social democrat. He's an anti-socialist, right? You know, if you were to tell me, what, what you would ask me rather, Aaron, what's the politics of the Observer? I would say, hmm, interesting. It's to the right of the Conservative Party on things like public ownership while calling those same people racist. That's the politics of the Observer. And we see it here. We see it here. Absolutely incredible. I'm so happy the story has come out. It's almost too much to believe that it's true. And yet, reality is sometimes stranger than fiction. We've got a great super chat here from Rachel Reese who says, wow, even Garfield's emails leak, which is very clever. Um, very good. I want to get back up um, graphic 10B because there's just a part of this email which I think is completely phenomenal. So she says, one, let's remember this is the, the CEO of, of, of one of these companies. One idea we believe might be attractive to the Labour leadership is repurposing utilities and utility networks into a new breed of declared social purpose companies. And then this is the bit. Companies that remain privately owned who absolutely can and should make a profit, but ones that also have a special duty to take a long-term view. Now I read that I think, how the hell did we give over our entire water infrastructure to companies who didn't have a special duty to take a long-term view, right? I thought the whole point of privatization of these natural monopolies is you say, you're, you're going to heavily regulate them, right? So they're not going to be able to exploit people. They're not just going to be able to extract profits because they've got a captive market. No, no, no. They're going to be heavily regulated. They'll, they'll invest that money back in there. Um, we will make sure they don't just profit maximize um, and exploit their, their position. Now, she's saying that 
it's not the case now that they have a special duty to take a long-term view. So we gave a bunch of companies our entire water infrastructure and they have no obligation to look into the long-term. Aaron, it seems a little bit like this is potentially closing the door after the, the horse has bolted, doesn't it? I mean, it just it just shows that off what and this idea of, you know, regulated uh, private water industries is complete nonsense. It's it's just, it's for show. It's a charade, okay? You know, you get those, um, those uh, normal distributions, you know, the... The, the very stupid person has the same opinions as the very clever person. And you have these people in the middle, the midwits, you know, and the, the, the stupid person and the clever person or the high and low IQ people on this thing have the exact same position, which is correct. None of these regulations matter. All these people are effectively, you know, it's an organized form of gangsterism. I don't want to say anything which would get me in trouble. Um, and, you know, the idea that this is somehow constrained by regulations and process and protocol, no, it's a money-making operation. This was a political effort to destroy organized labor in the 1980s, to destroy the idea of shared common ownership, because, of course, that is anathema to the Thatcherite project, and it has meant organized theft on a historic scale. And I think with water in particular, I think... As a privatization, I think it seems obvious to me, maybe people in the comments can disagree and feedback, but it seems obvious to me this is the worst privatization of them all because we have paid more and more for less and less. You know, the infrastructure hasn't been paid, uh, hasn't been uh, maintained. We're discharging huge amounts of effluent and literal shit into our waterways. And water bills have increased by 50% more than inflation since the early 1990s, and they're about to go up again quite significantly. And there was one more thing as well, Michael, from the, from the first part of that um, communication. You know, Labour will need to be seen to be doing something. They need to do something. Heaven forbid they try and actually solve the problem, right? Okay, we have a problem. We have massive underinvestment in uh, water. We have massive problems with regards to what would be called environmental externalities. We're discharging that into waterways. And bills are higher and higher and higher. Three problems. How do we solve this as best we can? No. We have to do something. We have to be seen to be doing something. And I find it absolutely remarkable, Michael, if somebody in the private water industry drafting a press release for the Labour Party. Think about that. Think about that. It's basically saying the people you elect aren't the people who determine the policy and communicate the policy. It's other people instead who act on the interests of millionaires and profiteers. Incredible. It will go down as one of those little episodes where you've really peeled back the curtain there and shown people how things operate in this country. And I'll finish with this. You know, less than 20% of Tory voters think that water in this country should be privately owned. There are super majorities amongst Liberal Democrats, uh, Tories, and Labour voters in favour of public ownership of water. And the fact that neither major party will adopt it, worse still, actually, the Labour Party is talking to some of these people if this communication is to be believed behind closed doors, really should be concerning about the extent to which we can call this country democracy. Because we, you know, perhaps we can't anymore. Perhaps we can't. There's been lots of uh, social science and research around, you know, the voter preferences of working class Americans are in no way reflected in the decision makers and what they choose to do at Washington. There's, there's no causal relationship. And I think that's where we're going now as a country. Let's go straight on to our next story. We've got two more to go through. The Tories love talking about deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda. 
and they love it when their fights with human rights lawyers make the six o'clock news. And that's because with nothing to offer on people's living standards, this, they think, is their only way to avoid electoral oblivion. But might they have miscalculated? Well, this was a pretty stunning moment on Question Time this week. Is there anyone here who supports sending people to Rwanda? Good on you. Do you want to respond to that, Helen, and to what you've heard? Um, now or after? No, yeah. just do okay. it now. I'll come to you in a moment, if you forgive me. Yeah, there's a, a few things to pick up there. I mean, and I just wonder what you think of, of, of the fact that there's no support in the audience for sending asylum seekers to Rwanda. Now, as I always like to make clear on Question Time, they choose the audience to try and make it representative of the population at large, so lots of those people should have been Tories. So, is the Rwanda policy less popular than Braverman and Sunak think it is? Well, not everyone thinks we should take that clip too seriously. James Johnson used to be a pollster for Theresa May. He tweeted this, Hey Siri, show me a social desirability effect. Now you're probably saying, James Johnson, a pollster for Theresa May, should we believe this guy? She clearly wasn't someone who was particularly in tune with the public mood. But I do think there probably is something to this. Social desirability bias, it's the idea that when people say they believe something, it might not be because they actually believe it, but because they think other people think it's the right thing to believe. So they're saying they believe it because it thinks that makes them look good. In secret, they might think something else. So in short, many people in that audience might have backed the Rwanda policy but were simply too embarrassed to admit it in public, and let alone, you know, not just in public, but also on national television. There is on this issue some evidence for that. The last time YouGov polled people on the Rwanda policy was last October. So I'll read the question in full because I think it does matter what people are asked. So YouGov asked the people they were surveying, the government has agreed a deal where some people who have entered Britain to apply for asylum will be flown to Rwanda in Africa for their asylum applications to be processed. If their application is successful, they would be granted asylum in Rwanda and would not be entitled to return to Britain. Do you support or oppose this proposal. Now, at the time they asked this, 24% of people strongly supported it, 18% tended to support it, only 12% tended to oppose, and 25% strongly opposed. So you can see there, more people supported it in one form or another than opposed it in one form or another. And a much more recent poll from More in Common, so they're a think tank, showed a majority of people still backed sending people to Rwanda, though most thought it was unlikely the policy would work, and um, which is potentially why Labour are going on the workability of it as opposed to the morality of it. Social desirability bias is quite important in politics. And I think right now, very few people in public are willing to defend the Conservative government on, on, on any policy. It takes a very brave person to go out there, if they were on you know, BBC Question Time in the audience, or if there was a Vox Pop conducted by another broadcaster, and they were asked by a journalist, what do you think of Rishi Sunak? What do you think of the Conservatives and their record in government? I, 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 there would be a, a a trivial number of people, you know, it, it's probably statistically insignificant, who would say they're doing a great job, I'm so happy with them, I'm definitely going to vote for them next time. Really? And I think this is an outgrowth of that. I just think people publicly don't want to show that they're attaching themselves to a Tory policy. I think, obviously, the, the, the survey data is far more robust. You know, statistically, that's far more reliable than a, a room of people that is um, not representative necessarily. And like you say, there are certain... Um, there are certain psychological effects, which mean people aren't necessarily honest in large groups when others can see what they are claiming to support. So he's right. But at the same time, there's clearly a massive uh, political overhead for the Conservatives if they're so unpopular that people now recognize a public downside in terms of being honest 
about how you feel about them. There's a great line, which is that I'm not suggesting we're on the cusp of revolution, if only. But there is a great line, which is uh, revolutions don't happen when everybody next to you thinks that a revolution is imminent. Revolutions happen when everyone thinks, everyone else thinks a revolution is imminent. That again really speaks to the idea of uh, certain psychological biases. And I feel like now, close to everyone, is pricing in a conservative defeat of the next general election. Now, that might not be great news for Labour. We had something similar in the year before 1992, and it meant it was a little bit harder. Um, it was a little bit harder for, for Labour to present themselves as the underdogs in those final few weeks of campaigning. And of course, John Major won in 92. So it's not necessarily you know, an unmitigated good for Labour. But what I think this shows you now is a, is a, is a default ambivalence amongst the public towards the party of government. We've not had that out of a general election in this country for a really long time. I mean, you might say Labour in 2010. Uh, I actually don't think it was that bad then. This seems significantly worse now. Uh, and when you think that this is, the, this is the Hail Mary policy of the Conservatives, it's the one that, like you say, is meant to distract from declining high streets, uh, high inflation, high interest rates, rising bills. £2,000 is now the average council tax bill in this country, but we're sending people to Rwanda and it's not even having the desired effect. I think that says something very important a year out from the next general election. I'm interested though in what you said about revolution because I think when it comes to voting and you know democratic liberal elections, social desirability bias can go in, in both ways in terms of who it benefits. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. So, so you're exactly right when it comes to revolutions, it doesn't so much matter what everyone thinks in their head, it matters what they think everyone else thinks, because there's a collective action problem. You're not going to go and start a revolution or go, you know, wave a placard around in an authoritarian state if you don't think there's hundreds of people who will join you because you'll be putting yourself in a, a massive risk. So if there is a social desirability bias against talking about having a revolution, that will go quite a long way to stop a revolution happening. But when it comes to democratic elections and, you know, a, a liberal democracy, it can be the case that no one will admit that they want people sent to Rwanda, but when they get into the voting booth on their own, they tick the box that says conservative. Now, this is you know, the shy Tory. We've talked about this for decades. And it could actually be the case that in a, in a liberal democracy, politicians in a way can benefit from believing something and saying something which people feel embarrassed to admit in public. And one of the reasons is because, you know, that might you know, say, well, well every, everyone else is disagreeing with me, but this, this politician is saying the truth. You know, Donald Trump did this a lot, say, no one else will admit it, but everyone thinks it. And I think that made him seem like a more authentic politician. The other way it, it can benefit a, a politician if what they're saying is, I suppose, outside the, the realms of, of, of what people see as a socially desirable thing to believe, even if they believe it, is that it doesn't get the scrutiny it might otherwise get. So you saw this with Donald Trump because no one in 2016 was, was really willing to, to stand up and defend Donald Trump's positions. Everyone assumed he was a complete joke. And that meant that he went relatively under-scrutinized. Um, you could say a similar thing in sort of 2015 when people thought Labour were doing much better in the polls than they were. So I think it could be the case that if people genuinely believe that they want people sent to Rwanda, but they won't admit it in public, that could actually be, and I'm, obviously I'm not saying this means the Tories are going to win the next general election. I think, I think they're, they're completely screwed. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for a political party to have a position which people agree with, but won't admit publicly they agree with. And that's because voting is a private act. I mean, what do you make of that, Aaron? No, I think you're very right to highlight the idea of the, the shy Tory. And I think... We agree here, Michael. So there were some people, for instance, on social media who were saying, look, 
Nobody agrees with this policy anymore. The Tories have been found out. The whole country has decided to change their mind on, on immigration in Rwanda. That's categorically untrue. And that, that speaks to some of the issues you just talked about. So I, I don't think we should think that these issues have gone away or voter preference on some of this stuff has gone away. But I, I do think it, it speaks to something about the political moment. And you can talk about Trump. You can talk about the Tories before 1992, but right now, Michael, right now, and look, it can change. We are we are seeing certain polls, Michael, which give Labour a 200 seat lead. I don't think that will happen, by the way, but, but that's what we're seeing. And so I think when you have the run up to the 2015 general election, you've got Linton Crosby working for Cameron. It's relatively close, but Labour are looking at a potential majority. Then I think some of the things you're referring to, yes, matter, but the Tories are going to need to reclaim and recapture the narrative to some extent. And if if people that, that shy Tory thing only works when it's it's relatively close. So I agree with you to to some extent, but I think it's not like 92. It's not like 2015. I think it's a different moment now. And I think actually going back to what you said at the start of this, most people don't think Rwanda is going to happen. Most people don't think it's just it's just they they think it's government virtue signaling. Not that the government won't execute it because the government's necessarily crap. Some of them will be Tory voters, but because it'll be blocked by judges. Somehow the European Union will get involved or it becomes technically impossible or whatever. It's just one of those things. You know, there's a great hypothesis in the London Review of Books just after the Brexit referendum, which said that people voted Brexit precisely, some people voted Brexit, precisely because they were so accustomed to nothing changing in politics they were so accustomed to their vote not really mattering that much that they didn't properly cost the downsides of leaving the European Union. They just said, well, people are saying this stuff, but people say all sorts of things at every election, every plebiscite, and it, nothing really changes. So on the one hand, you had some people, I don't doubt this for a moment, some people were very energized, wanted to vote for Brexit to change stuff a lot. Some people voted for Brexit because they didn't think anything would change. Uh, so it's an interesting one. But I, I do think the Tories need to rally their base. And I think, actually, Michael, final point here, is that you do have reform and all these other people. You have Farage, who was to the right of the Tory party. And I think that shy Tory thing works a little bit less when you have people to their right saying, well, hold on, net immigration is 600,000. You said it'd be tens of thousands 13 years ago. Hold on. You say you're hard on law and order, and yet we see XYZ person escaping prison. You know, hit and run. Somebody kills somebody driving and they go to prison for a year. What's that all about? Uh, so I think there's a bit more of a complicated dynamic here, Michael. But as ever, I think Michael Walker's insights, which are perhaps counterintuitive to what progressives are saying on Twitter, I think there's something to it. Let's go to our final story. Piers Morgan is a monarchist who thinks the royal family are, quote, worth every penny. But to his credit, he is open to debating other ideas. And as part of a Prove Me Wrong segment on his talk TV show, he invited on two Republicans. They were YouTuber Alex O'Connor and Graham Stewart from Republic, who laid out his case against the monarchy like this. Firstly, it's wrong in principle. It's not democratic. It stands on a completely different set of feudal values instead of the values of uh, accountability, equality and democratic mm-hmm. uh, rights and so on. Secondly, as an institution, it is not fit for purpose. It falls well short of the principles of public life. Um, I don't think it's going too far to say it's corrupt. And constitutionally, in terms of our politics and, and the way power is exercised, it funnels a lot of power. What have been the four most watched events globally involving this country in the last three years? 
Yeah, but that doesn't really... No, hang on. Well, you're going to say the weddings and the jubilees. Just answer my yeah. question. You're going to say the weddings and the jubilees. I'm not oh. sure that's even the case, because I think UEFA had... Um, well, forget, uh, forget football. Well, <laughs> okay, you can't just say forget football. When the world looked at the Platinum Jubilee, for example, when the world looked in a very different tone at the Queen's funeral, the King's coronation, you look at these events and it shows Britain, in my view, at its greatest. The pomp, the pageantry, the ceremony, the military precision. Everything worked like clockwork. Everyone around the world who was watching this, who was watching, and as a caveat, many people are not interested, I get that, but the millions, tens of millions around the world that watched it thought better of our country. How many things has happened in our country in the last three years involving our leaders, for example, which have brought shame and ignominy to the country? Here, you have a chance to show us at our best. Uh, what what yes. price do you put on there's that? There's nothing about the royal family that's brought us shame, in your opinion, that you've been sort of oh, of relentlessly talking about. As human beings, the, the idea that the human beings they are above as, the politics they are as fragile as any of us. And you say, you know, it doesn't help us to escape the various political scandals of prime ministers and presidents. Well, does it? I, I thought you were the one who's constantly banging on about Harry and Meghan and how they're a disgrace to our country or whatever it is. I don't, I don't think. Well, I think, I think rather like you two, their attempts to damage the monarchy and bring it down are actually disgraceful because I happen to support the monarchy. But so that's, few, that's a different argument. A few big events is not an argument for a constitution which is second rate. It's not an argument for an institution that abuses public money, that abuses public office to lobby for their interests. It's a very effective form of debating, actually, because one thing they didn't do is sort of... What Piers Morgan wants you to do when you go on his show is get outraged, because the moment you get outraged, he thinks, here is where I can pounce and I can make you look like you're a, you know, you're a sensitive liberal um, who gets offended at everything. What those guys were doing was keeping it very, very calm. Um, and, and Piers Morgan ended up having to say things like, well, forget about football. Um, aside from football... Um, aside from the Olympics, aside, they're, they're the biggest events apart from X, Y, Z. Now, once you're making those exceptions, you look a little bit like you're crutching at straws, don't you? I mean, also, I think the point that was made there, which is sensible, is that while you might get some good publicity for certain events um, involving the royal family, such as, I mean, I think even in, a, in, a, in an odd way, I think even the Queen's death was probably decent publicity for, for, for the country because, yeah, they, we put on a good show. But it's very, very risky um, having your... PR strategy as a country based on a family who inherit their positions. Because what if one of them is a Prince Andrew, right? It, it, it's, not a, it's not a risk-free strategy. Um, and I think they've got that as well. They, they, they got that across well. Let's look at some more of that debate. If you're going to have a monarchy and a royal family, and they're performing over a thousand duties a year, like which parties. is not a lot. Well, they're, they're actually getting lots of charities and they do a lot of help for people, which right? they couldn't do as private citizens. That, well, they, they could, but it wouldn't is... have the same impact. Okay. But here's my, here's my point. Here's my point. If you're going to have them, you should give them all the trappings. Why? Of a ro- Why? Because where, otherwise the, they're not a royal family. The they're not a monarchy. Where's the logic? The logic the, is, the, if you want we, people to buy into the magic of a monarchy and royal right. family, but it's not, you've got to give them the tools to not, be magical. It's not magic, it's, it's corruption. What would you have them in? A little te- Tesla? Uh, maybe, no. Maybe a, maybe a suit. Huh? That'd be fine. We could start by getting rid of these ridiculous garments. We spent most of the time that we've known what, dressed King like Charles you? dressed like me. I mean, and so to see him for the first time... You're the king dressed like you. Him, no offence. Well, but... he'd probably put on a tie. Huh? He'd look more like you, I suppose. Yes. 
To see exactly. him suddenly put on these robes would be like watching Rishi Sunak or someone suddenly but it's don part of our history. ludicrous robes. It gives, holding an orb. it gives us something it's so few other countries in the ridiculous. world have. Nobody can take it seriously. And you may not like Nobody it, you take it seriously. But many around the world love it. If you go to the Caribbean, if you go to America, you go to Canada, many you go to India, you go anywhere in the world, Australia. It's very odd to use the Caribbean as the example, because obviously, as we've been talking about on this show for the past year, lots of countries in the Caribbean want to leave the Commonwealth, right? So Barbados already planning um, to leave the Commonwealth. I think Jamaica is now thinking about it. Um, so this idea that everyone in the Caribbean loves Prince Charles putting on these wacky costumes, I think is a little bit far-fetched. Up next, they discussed what many use to defend the existence of the monarchy, its impact on tourism. And they bring they in just so money. much money yeah. from tourism. Well, they, that's not true. It, it is true. No, it isn't. That's definitely not, is true. That is definitely not true. Now, the thing is, there is no evidence. And I've sat down with the CEO and chair of Visit Britain uh, about a decade ago. And I said, there's no evidence that if we got rid of the monarchy, tourism would go down. And they said, yes, you absolutely You don't right. think the royal family brings was, in any money from tourism? There is no yes. evidence that that tourism money wouldn't come in anyway. I mean, if, you just, like the if you just look at the money that came in, in the weeks leading up to these big events that we've had over no, the last the, four you years, look at the huge amounts of money if came in. If you look at the visitor numbers. American tourists no, pouring the visitor in. Numbers Australian go, tourists. The Canadian visitor numbers tourists. go down when these things happen. If you look at the visitor numbers, they go down when these People things happen. People stay away from these kinds of things. And if I may say, Cheshire Zoo is a bigger tourist attraction in the UK than Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle. Mm. I wouldn't be in favor of a state-funded ceremonial when opening. When was the last time hundreds of millions of people exhibit. around the world on I certainly, television watched I certainly the, would watched not the be birth favor. of a penguin at Chester Zoo? I certainly would not be in favor <laughs> I, don't, do they? of its owners or its directors, or indeed the, the, the sort of sometimes sinister and yet still to be pitied animals that are go, kept within its cages, go, given any kind of political when office do we, over the rest of us. When do we beam the lives of the, the inmates of, tourists, of Chester Zoo the to the world? The are not a good justification for political office. I didn't realise that point about Cheshire Zoo. I mean, the, the one I often use in those conversations is Versailles, because many, many, many more people, I don't have the, the number to, to, to mind at the moment, but I think by orders of magnitude, many, many people more visit the, the Palace of Versailles in France than they do Buckingham Palace or Windsor. Now, what did the French do to their monarchy? Um, not too difficult a question. They obviously abolished them and um, in, in a pretty bloody way. So the idea that you need to keep the royal family for people to keep turning up to the palaces, again, seems a little bit far-fetched. Of course, I think Versailles is probably quite a bit more attractive than Buckingham Palace. So if we became a republic, I'm not sure Buckingham Palace would have quite the appeal Versailles does. Um, but the idea you need to give them um, the power to veto laws just to bring over some tourists, again, not too strong. And I think Piers Morgan was starting to realize that. The absurdity of his position, though, reached new levels in this next clip. What about uh, Williams' campaign at the moment to end homelessness? <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Funded by what? Funded, uh, by, funded, funded by us. And, and yep. what's this, like three million, three three million, million pounds? pounds? You say you don't like his campaign against homelessness? I think it's, it's formative. formative. What have you got nothing, against the homeless? It's nothing he couldn't do uh, as we, a private citizen. We give him £22 million. Pounds. What do you have against the homeless? What is it? We, what? Have, we give him £22 million. Pounds. Yes. We could spend that on. So you don't want him to help the that's homeless? That's the most ludicrous thing you've said on this show, and that says a lot. <laughs> The bar to, is low, I agree. To, to say that this is something that requires royalty, to say that this is something that requires he has some kind of political office, that he's going to inherit the head of, uh, head of statehood, that he's going to become the head of state of this country, that's got anything to do with his ability See, to get three million pounds to charity. What do you have against the homeless? That man is losing. Piers Morgan is losing that debate and he knows it. I'd actually be very interested to see if that, because I, I, I think this is a sort of new segment he's doing on the show, prove me wrong. As I say, fair play, bringing on people to sort of 
stress test his arguments. But he's got two people who are more articulate than him, and he's resorting to what do you have against the homeless? I don't think even the most cynical royalist viewer will be watching that and thinking, oh yeah, these two guests clearly hate the homeless. And <laughs> that was a wretch. Not a wretch, a reach. By the end, let's look at our final clip. The only thing left for Piers Morgan to do um, was to make the debate about Alex and Graham. A pair of you wake Case. up every day and you think, how do I end this thing I hate? Why don't you just ignore it? It's a bit like but vegan. I'll tell you what it is. We're, we're having a vegan debate in a minute. It's a bit like vegans who run into steakhouses screaming abuse about well, no, the meat. It's a bit like, if you don't like it's meat, a bit like, go and eat it's your a bit, brawl it's a bit in a little like, restaurant in the corner. It's a bit like saying... Leave me to eat my steak. It's actually a bit like say, getting up in the morning and saying, I want to end homelessness because I hate it. I want to end the monarchy right. because it is a bad thing. It's bad for Britain. It's bad for our governance. It's not bad for Britain. It's bad for our governance. And also, it's not bad for our image. Two out of the three times. It's purely ceremonial when it comes to governance. Two out of the three times that I've ever spoken about this subject. Because you've invited me to. Those are two of the three times that I've ever spoken about the subject in public. It's because you've invited me to. So I don't think it's me who's banging on about this. (laughs) Two of the three times he's ever talked about this in public is because Piers Morgan invited him. He got monstered. And that's because the arguments aren't on his side. It's one of those where... We are so inundated with misinformation in regards to the, what the royals do for this country and their importance in our, in, our, in our constitution, our sense of identity, and it just falls apart. Once you engage with the slightest uh, disagreement, uh, Graham Smith, who's the CEO of Republic, I interviewed him, him uh, for Navarro Media, you can catch that on Downstream. Very sharp man, and his counter-arguments are always very, very good. I mean, on the point on... Um, foreign countries, they love the royals. Well, there was polling out from Lord Ashcroft, I think in May, Michael, which had um, Australia, Canada, the Bahamas, and Jamaica would not want King Charles as their head of state. That's very recent polling. So I find it really, really odd that he, he said that. I mean, that's, that's com- the complete opposite direction of travel politically, as you hinted at, but actually it's even worse than just the West Indies or, or the Caribbean. Uh, and then, you know, another one is what it means for the UK economy. It's just one of those weird shibboleths and talking points that the right loves to go on about. It's a bit like fishing with Brexit. You know, fishing really doesn't matter to the UK economy. It really doesn't matter. For certain places, of course, historically, it's been a big part of the local economy. Somewhere like Grimsby, Hull, Hastings, parts of Kent, sure. But today, it really doesn't matter for the UK economy. You know, Games Workshop, Michael, who produced those little toys, like Warhammer toys and stuff, their turnover last year, or their revenue rather, was around £440 million. It was more than £400 million. All of the things they sell are manufactured and produced here in the UK. You know, I I would argue that we're not far off a, a situation where economically, Games Workshop matters more to the UK than the royal family. Little Warhammer toys. So, you know, let's have the debate. And I, I think the reason why we haven't had the debate is because the minute you do, and we actually start start to assess this thing on facts, then uh, royalists and their cause are on very thin ice. Let's wrap up there. Um, thank you, Aaron, for joining me tonight. It's been a pleasure as always. My pleasure, Michael. You're doing your little breaststroke while we... While we wrap up, I'm glad your voice is recovering and hopefully by Monday we'll have the old non-Marlborough man, Michael Walker, back. Yes, yeah, it's, it's getting there. I, f- I feel like it gives me a certain authority. You know, I feel that like that's why like Nigel Farage and Nick Ferrari can go out there and be like, because, you know, smoking and lager has sort of ruined their voice. But 
I suppose I shouldn't wish that upon myself. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Have a fantastic weekend. And remember to come back here on Monday at 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com support.